from KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. It was far from the landslide Biden-Harris victory last night that Democrats hoped for, and this morning key swing states remain undecided. But as millions of votes remained to be counted last night and Biden expressed optimism for the outcome in Wisconsin and Michigan, President Trump lashed out, falsely and simultaneously claiming victory and fraud. We want all voting to stop. We don't want them to find any ballots at four o'clock in the morning and add them to the list, okay? We get your reactions to this as of yet unresolved election and what could happen if the results are contested. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. As the vote count continues in the presidential election, Here's what we know from last night. Donald Trump has carried Florida, Texas, and Ohio. And we know that Joe Biden has New Hampshire, Minnesota, and according to the Associated Press, Arizona. Now a handful of states remain too close to call, the familiar battlegrounds of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, as well as North Carolina, Nevada, and Georgia. These states are working to count mail-in votes and some same-day votes and report out their numbers as they can. And this makes sense. This is our system at work. Here's Joe Biden last night. It's not my place or Donald Trump's place to declare who's won this election. That's the decision of the American people. But I'm optimistic about this outcome. Joining me now, Jessica Levinson, professor of law at Loyola Law School and host of the podcast, Passing Judgment. Thanks so much for joining us, Jessica Levinson. Thanks for having me back. Also with us is Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk and co-host of Political Breakdown. Hey, Scott. Hey, Mina. So, so first of all, where are we at in the presidential election? What are the campaigns saying in particular about what they see as their path to victory? Yeah. Well, it's still very much up in the air. Uh, Joe Biden, uh, with some changes overnight in Wisconsin and Michigan, holds a narrow lead in the electoral vote count uh, over Donald Trump. There are still millions of ballots still to count in a few states. Uh, for Donald Trump, he is hoping to pick up enough votes in either Nevada or Arizona to win those electoral votes. He trails in both of those states now, but not narrowly. Uh, I'm sorry, by, but narrowly, so it is not a bulletproof lead for Joe Biden. Uh, he is losing ground in Michigan and Wisconsin. He's ahead in Pennsylvania, but he might lose that as well. So for Trump, he would need to win Pennsylvania, hold on to Georgia, North Carolina, and uh, pick up either Arizona or Nevada. For Joe Biden, he's got a, you know, I would say, an easier path. He's got to hold on to his leads in Wisconsin and Michigan. He's got to hold on to Arizona and Nevada. Uh, he's leading in Arizona, as I said, but not quite a done deal. He'd love to win Pennsylvania, of course, and he might, uh, but he can get to 270 just barely without Pennsylvania. Um, and so we're just going to have to wait and see. There are still a lot of ballots to count. However, I think we're going to have a lot more clarity on where things stand by this afternoon. By this afternoon. Well, uh, Jessica Levinson, of course, we also know last night, even with all these ballots left to count, that the president claimed victory uh, in a way that, in the words of Ben Shapiro, was deeply responsible, but of, uh, deeply irresponsible, but of course also just is wrong, untrue, and doesn't make any sense. I want to get uh, first just your overall reaction 
to where we're at this morning. Jessica Levinson? Hi, Jessica Levinson, are you there? Well, while we wait for Jessica Levinson to, to reconnect with us, Scott, I mean, similar question to you. I think for a lot of people, particularly in California, which went so heavily for Joe Biden, I was seeing and hearing a lot of comments about uh, just how do they know the rest of America the way they think they did? <laughs> yeah, we do seem to be living in an alternate universe out here, not just in California, but on the West Coast in general. Uh, this is a real stress test for our democracy, Mina. That's how I would describe it. You know, elections generally work pretty well unless they're close. And then things, you know, you get to look under the hood and you see, you know, what happens. And, you know, we have a kind of a clunky system in the way that, you know, say, just take California, the counties run each of those elections, they all have different machines, they all have different rules. Um, and, uh, you know, then you add the other 49 states in the District of Columbia. So it can get very confusing. And because we have such a close election with so much at stake, with the nation so divided and a president who seems quite willing to cast doubt and sow division in the country, threatening lawsuits and everything else, it is, as I said, a real stress test for the country. And it is also stressful for those of us who are waiting to see the outcome. Jessica Levinson, are you with us? I am. I hope so. Yes, I can hear you. So glad to have you back. I don't know if you heard sort of the beginning of my question, but really, I, I wanted to start by just getting your overall reaction to where we're at this morning. You know, my overall reaction is that I frankly feel a little bit foolish because I've been saying for weeks now, everybody don't expect an outcome on election night. And I've been saying there could absolutely be this thing called the red mirage and then the blue shift. And that's because so many more of us are voting by mail and the vote by mail ballots will take longer to count and the vote by mail ballots, a lot of them will probably be blue ballots, meaning will be from Democrats. And I was still, uh, you know, on a human level, I just was still surprised last night. But I think we're frankly seeing a lot of what we predicted that the red mirage, we don't know how much of a blue shift there's gonna be. And then another thing we predicted was President Trump saying, I declare victory. And of course that has you know the same legal consequence as me saying, I am now the queen of rainbows and sunshine. Just declaring victory has no legal consequence. But a lot of the things we talked about are playing out right now. And it's, it's difficult to kind of live the thought experiment real time, but here we are. Yes, yeah, so there really is no legality or validity, just to put a fine point on that, to Trump's claim of victory. There is no legality or validity. Now it is. Jessica Levinson? It's possible, as Scott was laying out, it's possible that. Pre yes, um, it, it's possible that President Trump wins reelection. But I don't think at this point that's probable. And what we know for sure is just saying I won is not uh, legally consequential. It, it does not make any decision. What makes a difference is counting the votes and then certifying the results, having the Electoral College vote and having Congress certify that result. Now, the president has threatened to go to the courts. Let me actually play a little bit of a cut from his statement last night regarding the courts. We want the law to be used in a proper manner. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. 
We don't want them to find any ballots at four o'clock in the morning and add them to the list. Okay. So I know that you're saying that there's no validity or legality to his claim of victory, but what could constitute? Are there anything? Are there any valid grounds to challenge a potential Biden result? Sure, but not based on what President Trump just said. So this is kind of a blunt force example, but imagine a scenario in which there is somebody who's at a county registrar and they have a big box of ballots and the box of ballots are vote by mail ballots and they start counting at 11 and then the clock strikes midnight and they're about halfway through and they say, well, election day is over. I guess I'm just going to set the rest of this box on fire. It, that that makes no sense. There's nothing about those ballots that suddenly becomes invalid or questionable. And, you know, this idea that we're going to f- uncover the 4 a.m. fraudulent ballots, I mean, then there's really no reason to trust the ballots that came in earlier in the day either. That's essentially saying that we can't trust county registrars, we can't trust state election administrators because they're all in this vast conspiracy to make sure that President Trump does not win, at which point, um, you know, again, you can't trust the ballots that come in before or after Election Day. But it just makes absolutely no sense to say, well, we're just going to trash any ballot that we couldn't count by a certain time. And frankly, that's not how we ever conduct elections in America. Typically, we can project out, at least on the presidential level, what's going to happen. And so we count all the ballots later, but we know basically what's going to happen election night. That's often not true. You know, I'm talking to you from uh, LA. That's often not true when it comes to, for instance, the down ballot races. And it's hard to have patience, but that's what we should have. And that's what legally matters at this point. Right. And so at this point, there really isn't anything that he could bring a legal charge with. That said, can you just talk about why it is dangerous, irresponsible, reckless to be suggesting that the votes that are being counted now are somehow suspicious? Well, it's dangerous because when it comes to elections and the integrity of elections, it really matters that we trust the system. And if we don't trust the system, I mean, this is going to sound hyperbolic, but at that point, you know, what, what's the point in voting for anyone all the way down from, you know, community college district to up to the president? The thing that's dangerous and I think potentially effective is when the president says, we won. And if anything changes, that means it's fraud, is he's really able to dominate that narrative very clearly and in the beginning to say, if anybody tells you different, it means that they're just engaged in lying and it allows him to make Vice President Biden look like a sore loser. And this is something I think he learned from Bush v. Gore in 2000, which is the person who can say kind of the fastest, I won and put the other person on the defensive, then the more you gain a psychological battle. But it's very dangerous if people feel that we cannot trust our election systems. Our election systems are in some ways a mess, but they're not corrupt. They're not fraudulent. They don't lack all integrity. And those two things are very different. Messiness is different from a system that we simply can't trust. 
We're talking with Jessica Levinson, professor of law at Loyola Law School and host of the podcast Passing Judgment. Also with us is KQED Scott Schaefer, senior editor for our California Politics and Government Desk and co-host of Political Breakdown. We're bringing you continued analysis of the national election results. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. How are you? How are you reacting to where we're at right now, to what unfolded last night? What are your questions about what lies ahead, both potentially legally, but also politically? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Stephen writes, can we be a little more direct about Trump's comments on the election last night? They were bald-faced lies and a direct attack on American democracy. They should be repudiated in no uncertain terms by anyone who cares about the integrity of our system. We'll have more with you, our listeners, after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're bringing you continued analysis of the national election with Scott Schaefer of KQED's California Politics and Government Desk and Jessica Levison, professor of Loyola Law School. And you are listeners, of course, 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786 is the number to call with your comments and questions. You can reach us at KQED Forum on Twitter or Facebook or email us at forum at kqed.org. Joining me now is Geraldo Cadava, associate professor of history at Northwestern University and author of The Hispanic Republican, The Shaping of an American Political Identity from Nixon to Trump. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So one of the stories of this election so far is the impact and influence of Latino voters, which we talked about with you earlier this month. How significantly did Latinos move toward Trump that we can see so far with preliminary numbers? I think a pretty significant amount. I mean, we're still waiting to have a more complete picture, but Latino decisions did an election eve poll both in 2020 and 2016. And in 2016, it showed Trump winning 18% of the Latino vote. And in 2020, this year, it showed Trump winning 27% of the vote. And, you know, that that represents a significant expansion of Trump uh, Trump's support among Latinos over the past four years. Now, one of the things, of course, uh, was that uh, President Trump essentially denied what uh, Joe Biden was hoping would be an early get, which was Florida. I know he that wasn't at all for sure, but there were signs, at least polling wise initially, and we know that things happened with the polls, that uh, Biden was very competitive and potentially up as well. A lot has been said about Cubans in Florida, but do you think that's the whole story? Are you talking just about Florida? Or, yes, or, just about uh, Florida, because it does feel like there was a complicated picture in Florida as well, even and even in other states that have large Latino populations. But let's concentrate on Florida first. Yeah, I mean, Florida, Florida is a big, diverse, complicated state, not just with Latinos, but with, you know, suburban voters, retirees, the panhandle versus South Florida. It's just a very 
diverse state with lots of different groups. And so it's a complicated picture. But I think, you know, just to begin with, one thing that's really notable about Florida is that Trump actually quadrupled his margin in 2020 compared with 2016 and uh, maybe tripled, maybe tripled. I don't want to, you know, exaggerate. But I think in 2016, he won by about 110,000 votes. And this year he won by more than 300,000 votes. And a lot of that, sure, has to do with, um, you know, the Democratic candidates, uh, underperformance among, uh, well, in Miami-Dade County in general. Yes. But, um, you know, I think that that it is a more complicated picture than that. I think it's long been assumed that Puerto Ricans in the center of the state, for example, in Orange and Kissimmee will, you know, uh, demonstrably, overwhelmingly go for Democrats. But even that's a more complicated picture. I think the Trump campaign had been you know, attending services at Latino evangelical churches in central Florida and appealing to a Puerto Rican middle class in order to try to make inroads. And this is work that the campaign has been doing in general for for years, you know, not just during the campaign, but ever since Trump took office. There was some talk that uh, Latino voters may have helped Biden in Arizona and also even in terms of uh, closing the gap in Texas pretty significantly. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I was listening this morning to a, a press conference with um, the Biden campaign people, and they were talking about how Latinos helped deliver uh, Arizona. And, you know, if, if Nevada ends up going towards Biden, then will have helped deliver Nevada as well. I would even, you know, possibly expand on that. I mean, I think there are enough eligible Latino voters in the upper Midwestern states that we're still waiting for, too, to cover the margin this year and in 2016 in places like Wisconsin, Michigan, and, and Pennsylvania. So, you know, Latinos can make a difference in all of those states. But to be perfectly honest, I would not want the lesson for Democrats to be this year that Latinos helped Biden win in Arizona and Nevada. I would be really concerned, actually, about the inroads that Trump was able to make and even expand by 9% of the Latino vote, his support in 2020 compared with 2016. And I think there's going to have to be a, a, a long time thinking about what that expansion means. I don't think it's just, you know, the, the depression of the Latino Democratic vote, or I don't think it's just that if Democrats had only invested more money in Spanish language ads earlier on that there were votes, more votes Biden could have won. I think that's possible in some cases, but I think the big picture point is that Trump did a lot to activate Latino voters, not just in Florida, but in a lot of different parts of the country. And what do you think fundamentally both parties don't understand about Latinx voters? I think fundamentally that both parties still kind of see, well, at least, you know, maybe during this election cycle, it was more Democrats who were guilty of this than Republicans, but still see them in kind of instrumental terms as, you know, a, a block of voters concentrated in particular swing states like Florida, Texas, and Arizona, instead of a truly national population that can make a difference in lots of places across the map. I think that's one thing. But I also think, you know, seeing Latinos in instrumental terms and thinking you can appeal to them by just, you know, playing Luis Fonsi on your cell phone really, you know, underestimates them as serious political actors and political agents with uh, 
deeply held beliefs about the economy, about education, about healthcare, about immigration, about a whole range of issues. And I think that the conversation over the next four years really has to be about how can we get to know Latino voters every day for the next four years, even when we're not looking for their votes. I think in some ways, the Trump campaign did that better. Well, let me go to Tom in Half Moon Bay. Hi, Tom, join us. Hi, thank you. Can you hear me? I can. Great. So I'm really horrified uh, that the race is so close, um, that there was no blue tsunami. Um, and it, to me, it means that if Trump voters could overlook his obvious character flaws and lies and his threat to democracy itself, that means that they fear and hate Democrats and government so much that Democrats really need to listen to them very carefully and respectfully and find out what are they really voting about and do a lot of soul searching and rethinking about their policies and strategies. One thing I thought months ago was that Democrats needed to say what Trump was doing right in order to tell his supporters that they didn't represent just the polar opposite of everything he did. Well, Tom, thanks for sharing that perspective. Let me go next to Isabel in San Jose. Hi, Isabel. How are you? Oh, I'm I'm very uh, very anxious. I'm very nervous and stressed. <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, I wanted to just to say that um, I I feel like the the Democrats and the Democratic Party should respond a lot stronger. Because it seems like we're told, being patient, wait. But meanwhile, Trump has had his little plan forever about, you know, saying that the elections were were um, tampered with, and he's been ready to challenge it, and he's going to go all the way. So I don't understand why they are not more proactive in in protecting these these votes. I mean, whether he passes or not, in a way, who cares as long as it's fair. But uh, but it doesn't sound like it's like this. So it seems like to me that we're just sitting there, oh, be patient and wait, and then uh, we'll get the results. But, you know, it's obvious he's, he's prepared to say, well, it's wrong, it's, it's false, it's, you know, they've been thrown out, the ballots have been here and there. So um, I'm a little disappointed. And then... Yeah, yeah, I guess yeah. that's it. Well, Isabella, thanks for sharing that. I mean, this listener writes, I was feeling reassured earlier in the week when national polls were showing a big blue lead that my country members and I held similar human-centered values. This morning, I feel unsettled. I don't know my fellow Americans. This listener writes, if Biden is president, but the Senate is controlled by the Republicans, do you think they will try to stonewall the president as they did with Obama? Or will they be more willing to compromise and get some things done, given Biden's history in the Senate and his ability to work with both sides? Scott Schaefer, this is probably a good time to just check in on what the likely scenario is for Dems in the Senate at this point. Democrats have been very hopeful uh, of picking up enough seats to win the majority. They have a very narrow path to do that, and it's getting more narrow. They needed a net pickup of four if they win the White House, three if they do win the White House, uh, with Kamala Harris as vice president breaking any ties. Right now, they have a gain of just one. Um, they lost uh, a seat in Alabama, which they expected. They picked up Arizona and Colorado, as they had hoped and expected. But they all the ones that were close and too close to call, uh, but Democrats were hoping for, seemed to have gone the 
wrong way. Uh, they lost Iowa. They lost Montana. They lost South Carolina. Uh, Maine, uh, I saw a tweet, had not confirmed that Sarah Gideon, the Democrat in that race, has called and conceded to Susan Collins. Mm. Uh, she may have held on. In North Carolina, Tom Tillis, the Republican, uh, has a narrow lead over Cal Cunningham, the Democrat. A couple of Georgia seats still very much up in the air. So, uh, you know, it's uh, you could end up again with a very, uh, you know, the House still in firm control uh, by the Democrats and a very, very narrowly divided Senate, which, you know, is apparently a reflection of the country. I think what it will do is um, force, to a certain extent, uh, Republicans and Democrats to work together on some things, starting with some kind of an economic stimulus uh, that has been, you know, passed by the House, stalled in the Senate for a long time. And I think it may um, mo moderate uh, the opportunities for policy initiatives by Joe Biden if he wins. Um, going for things like infrastructure, uh, you know, economic development, you know, maybe, uh, you know, sort of the, this whole idea of going for Medicare for all, which is something that uh, the more liberal wing of the party had wanted. Uh, clearly, that's not going to happen. So, you know, we just have to wait and see. Obviously, there's a lot of anxiety, still have a lot of questions and things being up in the air. But I, I'm not sure that anybody really wants to go or thinks we can afford to go another two or four years uh, with a total stalemate in the Congress. Let me go to caller Forrester in Napa. Hi, Forrester. Hi. So um, I had a question, um, and it was that if if things get tied up here in a legal battle um, over the election going forward, um, and and that and it's still tied up on inauguration day, um, is is Trump still allowed to stay in office, or um, or how does that work? Hmm. And uh, I'll take my I'll take my answer off the air. Thanks, Forrester. Jessica Levinson? Uh, that's a great question. And so, no, the answer is that this has to be decided before Inauguration Day. So there are a couple of deadlines for listeners to be thinking about. December 8th is the so-called safe harbor deadline. That's the deadline by which all disputes with respect to which slate of electors will the state send to the Electoral College really need to be decided. Again, will the, will the state send the uh, Trump-Pence slate or will the state send the Biden-Harris slate? Then on December 14th, the Electoral College votes. On January 6th, Congress certifies the vote of the Electoral College. But there is nothing in the Constitution that says you can hold over your term if there is election litigation. And I know that there's a lot of concern about this. So, um, you know, to the listener... No, the term is up noon Eastern time, January 20th, 2021. That is it. There is no exception in the Constitution for unless someone says it was a fraudulent election or unless somebody says we're still in litigation. The litigation has to be completed. The term is over, period. Well, Jim writes, it's clear that the president is blatantly subverting citizens' confidence in our electoral process in his attempt to steal the election. My question is, why do the other GOP leaders sit quietly on the sidelines and not rebuke his ridiculousness and even dangerous assaults on our democratic process? I mean, Scott, you were men mentioning earlier that maybe this election, because of its closeness, could potentially have some kind of a moderating <laughs> effect. Are you hearing anything from the GOP? I know that 
uh, a lot of conservative pundits were very quick to condemn the president's or or criticize the president's statements about, yeah. uh, you know, that he won and so forth last yeah, night. Yeah, you know, I just a few minutes ago tweeted something to that effect. Where are the patriotic, reasonable Republicans? Uh, you know, there, up until now, there's been this fear that if you go against President Trump, he's, you're going to have a primary challenge. Well, we've had an election, so that threat is not imminent. And so uh, fear of Donald Trump is not really, shouldn't be a driving factor at this moment. And concern for our democracy and the outcome of this election in a way that everyone accepts ought to be the, you know, the paramount concern that people have right now. And I, I, I think that you know, silence is complicity in a certain way. And uh, one would hope uh, that if the president continues to try to undermine faith in the electoral, in the election system and our democracy, that you will see more people speaking up. Uh, you know, in 1974, you know, Nixon held on until a group of Republicans went to the White House and said, you know what, it's time to go. I'm not saying that's going to happen with President Trump, but I do think there needs to be some cooler heads to prevail. You know, but he has he has now surrounded himself with very few people, if anyone, who's really going to challenge him. So he's living in a bit of a bubble. Well, this listener writes, could we ask Geraldo Cadava about the misinformation campaigns directed at Latinos and why they fell for them so easily? I heard one from a friend that is Mexican-born in-laws voted for Trump because they heard that Biden would sell out the U.S. to Japan if he won. <laughs> That's a new one. I hadn't heard that one. <laughs> I had heard the, uh, you know, QAnon, Pizzagate type things, and then all of the, uh, you know, memes about socialism. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. It's a good, it's a good question. And what I'm trying to figure out is if, you know, there's something qualitatively different in the kind of misinformation that's being spread now compared with the kind of misinformation that Republicans have slandered Democrats with for a long time. Like is you know, Barack Obama was a socialist. We can't forget that Donald Trump's political rise was tied to birtherism and he was like the King birther, right? And so that has led to a kind of conspiratorial thinking among Republican leaders for years at this point. And I remember going to a, uh, hearing a, a talk by Ted Cruz in 2017, where in the same breath, he said that Fidel Castro, Nicolas Maduro, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are the same. Uh, there's no difference between socialists in Latin America and democratic socialists of America here. And that's all misinformation. You know, the idea that Barack Obama was not eligible to be president, that he was a socialist, that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the same as Fidel Castro, that's misinformation. So is there something qualitatively different about this misinformation now that's just being circulated by different media. You know, there are different platforms now with TikTok and WhatsApp and other things. So, you know, I think that hastens the, the spread of misinformation. But in many ways, I think Republicans have relied on misinformation for a long time. We're talking with Geraldo Cadava, Associate Professor of History at Northwestern University and author of The Hispanic Republican, The Shaping of an American Political Identity from Nixon to Trump. Jessica Levinson is here with us, Professor of Law at Loyola Law School and host of the podcast Passing Judgment. And Scott Schaefer, Senior Editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, co-host of Political Breakdown. And you, our listeners, we're talking about what has happened last night, making sense of it, and also looking at what lies ahead. We're taking your legal questions, political questions, and your questions 
questions about how our electorate is demographically and what it is doing. Sophia writes, we need to separate the economy in general from how Biden talked about the economy during a pandemic. I was dismayed every time Biden would lead with how he would listen to scientists, which is commendable, but didn't give equal time to reassuring the public that he would bend over backward to prevent lockdowns wherever possible. So we're hearing a lot from our listeners, and you can continue the conversation by calling 866-733-6786. Again, weigh in by calling 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll have more with you after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're analyzing what we know so far about the national election results with Scott Schaefer of KQED, Jessica Levinson of Loyola Law School, and Geraldo Cadava of Northwestern University. And you, our listeners, let me go now to Trish in Sebastopol. Hi, Trish. Good morning. I'm just calling because last night I heard Mr. Trump say that our processes are an embarrassment. And I just want to give a shout out to the citizens of the country and the world that Mr. Trump is the embarrassment. Well, Trish, thanks for putting that on the record. Uh, Let me go next to George in San Francisco. Hi, George. Or San Jose. Hi, George. Hi, I'm calling about the missing blue wave. Uh, And I'm wondering if the Biden campaign might have... created a couple of unforced errors right near the end of the campaign. One might have been invoking President Obama giving speeches in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Obama certainly brings out the vote, but he could also bring out more votes against Biden than, than for Biden. And the second unforced error might have been that Biden kind of sat in Pennsylvania on the last day of the election rather than traveling to Michigan and Wisconsin and Arizona uh, and uh and Nevada on the last day. So do you think either of those could have been unforced errors? Hmm. Let me see what Scott Schaefer thinks, Scott. Well, I think it's too soon to say. I mean, uh, you know, in terms of Michigan, Wisconsin, it looks like the vice president may win those. He could also win Pennsylvania. Uh, You know, you could say, you know, he did dip into Ohio. Uh, They sent uh, President Obama down to Florida. You know, there are always things that you, you know, they were trying to expand the map a little bit. Um, You know, in the end, if Biden wins, I think there's going to be a lot less second guessing. One thing, though, that I do wonder about is why they waited so long to roll out uh, a real effort to win over Latino voters. Um, You know, I just, I feel like they were warned for a long time that they needed to do more on that front. And it does seem that they waited, you know, to the to the very end. And, uh, you know, Geraldo may have some thoughts about that. But clearly, and I realize Latino voters in Florida and Texas are very different from California. Uh, nonetheless, it does seem like perhaps they took that community for granted, or at least took their eye off the ball and didn't focus on messages that would resonate with that with that with those communities. 
Well, Terry writes, until the U.S. tackles its biased partisan news outlets as a current and immediate threat to democracy, the divide between blue and red will continue. No other Western democracy has TV news media that is allowed to take a 100% biased stance. Jessica Levinson, I'd love to get your reaction to that, your thoughts to that. I mean, time to bring back the fairness doctrine. That comes up a lot as part of the demise. Yeah, I, you know, time to bring up the fairness doctrine. I will say I am really worried about, I kind of hate this term, but information ecosystem. So you were just talking about disinformation when it came to the Latinx community. I continue to be really worried just in general about basically two buckets of things. The first is that we each obviously live in echo chambers. And so we used to all read from the same script and we seem to no longer do that where uh, we instead just turn on to the station that is going to either give us uh, information that is neutral or information that will just uh, justify our preconceived notions. And the other is something we really need to tackle, which is this idea of uh, disinformation. And the discussion you were having before was the actually kind of a rare type of disinformation where somebody expressly says, Joe Biden will do this and he won't do it. But the more common that I understand is, excuse me, the disinformation that just causes chaos and confusion. And the law is so far behind that. And I know I'm just giving problems, not solutions, but this is going to be a problem for the next election and the election after that. So I don't think the fairness doctrine is really what we're looking at. We're looking at something more nefarious, which is technology that is so far out ahead of the law and law that frankly, we wanna be really careful about not creating any sort of censorship. The ideal is that speech is met with other speech, but we know that's that we don't live in an ideal world. Maurice tweets, it seemed like we're doing the same as in 2016 by trying to use polls as a crystal ball. Looks like they were grossly wrong and tricked many people again. Geraldo Cadaba, what do you think about our polling industry? I mean, there are questions now that is it fundamentally broken or is it just so not inclusive or diverse enough, especially the people who are involved in polling? These, these are great questions, and I will totally answer it. Um, I, since you called on me, I'm going to take the prerogative to respond to a couple things that um, Jessica just said, too. Because in, in some ways, you know, one elephant in the room that is really worth thinking about, I think, is the fact that Donald Trump, I'm looking at the MSNBC screen right now, has won the votes of 66,580,000 Americans. And... You know, I think part of the question going back to something Scott said is, you know, yeah, we should hold Republican leaders accountable and ask why they've gone along with all of the things Trump has done. But we also need to consider why 66 million Americans cast their votes for Donald Trump. And I would hope that if Biden wins or loses, I mean, I would I would well, I guess wins in this particular scenario, I would hope that Trump supporters, too, would ask themselves, well, what is it about Joe Biden that led 69 million Americans and counting to vote for him? And clearly it's not just about, you know, Donald Trump's sentiment that the Biden campaign is stealing the election. I mean, 69 million votes represent represents the preferences of 69 million Americans. And so I think that gets also just this idea that Jessica brought up that 
we don't talk to each other. We don't try to understand these things. I think in some ways, you know, our response to the 2016 election and, you know, for the next four years was defined by kind of outrage and resistance. And here we are. And I think that the next four years, regardless of who's in office, can't just be about outrage and resistance. We need to do more listening to each other and talking to one another. So uh, that's my soapbox. But about the polls, you know, I don't know the answer really, but a question I've had, I mean, I think it's just clear by this point that we are living in a moment of political realignment and scrambling in ways that we don't fully understand. And I've been wondering if polls by definition or inherently in moments of realignment and scrambling are just less accurate because so much of the output of polls relies on what goes into the polls. And if you're basing your prior assumptions on, you know, historical elections in the past, I'm, I, and, and we're living in a moment of realignment and scrambling, I'm, I'm not sure how, you know, accurate the input and output will be. But that's, that's really a question I don't know the answer to. Yes, I think a lot of people are examining that now. Jonathan in San Francisco, join us. Hi, Jonathan. Hi. Uh, yeah, I, in my interactions with, with conservatives online and in person, uh, the thing I found is they really uh, have a, just live in a different reality. That uh, you know, I, I, I read the New York Times and listen to NPR, uh, in, and believe mainstream media, believe in, in journalism, uh, and uh, they don't. They have their own uh, their own media that they listen to that that has that just has different information, like the Hunter Biden. Uh, computer is real uh, versus the mainstream media that there's real there are real doubts about it and uh, so there ends up being no 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 ground for for uh, for no common ground because we just don't ha- we just don't live in the same world. Jonathan, thanks for sharing that reflection. Richard writes, Biden could have won Florida if he had had the sense to come out strongly against Cuba and Venezuela and loudly proclaim that he did not support any kind of socialism. This listener writes, did anyone else notice that the news didn't really cover Biden during the election? Lots of people said it was better to leave Trump out there spewing idiocracy and just let Biden be the quiet alternative. But after 2016, it seems like they should have learned that Trump thrives on getting people to hate him. I mean, as I listen to all the last things that we've just been saying, Scott Schaefer, the comments by both Jessica Levinson and Geraldo Cadaba, and also our listeners, I mean, if Biden wins right now, he may have a slight edge here, right? I think there is this question question of how he governs such a deeply divided country, whereas Jonathan was saying, there are a lot of people asking themselves, who, who are we? (laughs) Who is the other? I don't feel like I truly understand the American character anymore. You know, I was struck by an editorial endorsing Joe Biden in the final days of the campaign from the Manchester Union in New Hampshire, a very conservative newspaper that almost always endorses Republicans. And they endorsed Joe Biden. And they said something along the lines of, you know, Joe Biden might not be the president you want, but he's the president we need. And I think what that the sentiment of that is that he it might be the kind of person who can lower the temperature, who can listen, who can be empathetic, who can see where there are areas of agreement instead of trying to magnify and exacerbate the differences. Uh, you know, from the very moment that Donald Trump uh, announced he was running for president, it was all about us and them. And a lot of us thought that he would moderate that uh, once he won the nomination, and if not then, once he won the election 
election, and if not then, once he was inaugurated, and it never really happened. It only accentuated as time went by, and it has contributed to. Now he's not, you know, he's, you know, I know he's not the only reason that the country is divided, and I do think Democrats need to listen, uh, as uh, as Geraldo said. Um, you know, there is a sense that Democrats talk down to people in the middle of the country, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think it comes out in things like climate change, where people in places like West Virginia and Kentucky feel, and other places, Montana, many places, feel that their way of life is threatened by clean energy. They may not understand or they, the rhetoric may turn them off. Uh, about all these, you know, clean jobs, green jobs. So I think Democrats need to figure out uh, how to talk to people who disagree with them or who are frightened by them. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who voted for Barack Obama once or twice and then voted for Donald Trump once or twice. Um, you know, so I think there are voters who are looking for leaders who respect them, don't talk down to them, and try to understand where they're coming from. Well, this listener, I think, is sort of agreeing with you here. This listener writes, over the last 20-plus years, the Democratic Party has completely ignored rural and small-town issues. This is enough to create the small-state edge that Republicans have exploited. Again, we're talking with Scott Schaefer of KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, Jessica Levinson, host of the podcast Passing Judgment, and a professor of law at Loyola Law School, Geraldo Cadaba, associate professor of history at Northwestern University, and author of the book The Hispanic, the Hispanic Republican, the Shaping of an American Political Identity from Nixon to Trump. And you, our listeners, are with us, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786 to weigh in. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Yuval writes, can you please explain the Texas ballot counting method? In the live NPR map, it shows that 84% of the ballots are in, and there are only 6% difference in the votes between Biden and Trump. How can they know the results and call who won? I'm not sure <laughs> who wants to weigh in on this, Scott, or maybe Geraldo Cadava. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of these uh, races that get called are based on a lot of data that Associated Press and other news organizations get. A lot of it is exit polling, uh, but they are analyzing the trends. They know better than we do, where the votes that are counted come from, where the votes that are outstanding come from. You know, last night, the Associated Press called Virginia for Joe Biden, like at 7.30 California time. And it wasn't until hours later that, uh, you know, that Biden pulled ahead of uh, of Trump in Virginia. So it turned, they turned about out to be correct. But sometimes in the moment, it's like, what are they talking about? What are they seeing that they're not telling us? Well, uh, this listener writes, please consider the macho men, Latino Florida voters didn't want a woman to be vice president or potentially president. Uh, you know, and then this other comment that Geraldo, uh, Geraldo Cadava about Texas is making me think about how the Rio Grande Valley, which is 90% Mexican, you know, Biden barely pulled that out as well. Can you talk a little bit about about Texas, but also about this consideration of Trump's sort of personality, this persona of machismo, is that appealing? Yeah. Um, you know, that's certainly gotten a lot of attention. And I think part of why it gets attention is just there There truly is a real gender gap among Latinos. Um, I haven't seen the final results from last night about that, but I know that in 2016, uh, two thirds of his Latino support came from men and one third came from women. And the exact opposite was true with Hillary Clinton, where two-thirds of her Latino support came from women and one-third from men. So, you know, and I think that gender gap has, you know, if not 
widened, remained the same over the past four years. And I should just mention quickly, that's it didn't exist in the 1980s. There, with Latinos, there wasn't a gender gap. Um, so, you know, people have tried to explain it. And the only, sure, there might be something to machismo. The, I, I kind of like in a almost a knee-jerk way or instinctive way reject the idea that um, it stems from their familiarity with Latin American strongmen and dictators, just because it strikes me as an interpretation that relies on some some kind of cultural essentialism. Anytime, yes. you know, anytime people say like Latinos are, that, yes. that just starting a <laughs> sentence with those two words, Latinos right. are, we try to banish that from our language. But I would I would point to other things instead, like the fact that 50% of the border patrol is Latino. Uh, it's a profession that's overrepresented by males and same thing with the military and police forces and you know you can look at construction industries and there are a lot of latinos who work in construction they're overwhelmingly male industries and so i think you know that to me that those kinds of things better explain why latino males turn out for donald trump more than um more than others so to texas you know Texas is a good reason. There was so much attention to Texas in the days and weeks leading up to the election. And the idea was that, you know, the new hundreds of thousands of registered Latino voters were going to make the state purple, possibly flip it for the first time since 1976. And, you know, it was close. It definitely was close. But again, this is an example of where I wouldn't want the narrative coming out of the election to be like, look how well Biden did with Latinos because he made these Republican states close. Instead, I think it's important to look at the, the fact that the Rio Grande Valley, for example, like, you know, this is an overwhelmingly Mexican-American community, if you can call it a community. I mean, it's a big swath of Texas. And it has been traditionally democratic to the point that Democrats don't often visit. They just take their votes for granted. But I interviewed a, a woman running for Congress uh, named Monica de la Cruz, who is from Edinburgh. And she was telling me about how Donald Trump really helped Mexican-Americans in the Rio Grande Valley find their voice and say loudly and proudly that they are conservatives. And to the point where they considered themselves to be walkaway Democrats and were going to abandon this party who whose votes or who, or who had taken them for granted and they were going to cast their lot with Republicans. You know, I was talking to her at a moment when she was in full spin mode and optimism because she was a candidate and trying to explain why her campaign had momentum. But, you know, her point was that there was energy for Latino Trump in the Rio Grande Valley or Latinos for Trump in the Rio Grande Valley. And that's really something to look at. And again, you know, if it's true, we'll wait to see how it ends up. But if it's true that you know, Latinos move to Trump, you know, around 9% of them, you know, increasing support nationally from 18% to 27%, according to Latino decisions. And those numbers may well be low. If that ends up being true, you know, if it were true in the other direction, that's something the Biden campaign would pay a huge amount of attention to. Like, how is it that Biden expanded his support among Latinos by 9%? Anytime the Latino electorate moves by 9%, that's a significant story. And part of that story is in the Rio Grande Valley. And I would you know, if I were Democrats, pay real attention to that. Well, this listener feels like, again, that Fox News is the real issue. I feel that we are in the weeds analyzing and missing the elephant in the room. All the Trump supporters I know tell me they get all their information from Fox News. 
Scott Schaefer, just very quickly in the last 20 seconds, I mean, you mentioned that we could have some clarity as early as this afternoon. When do you think we will know if you just want to say, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but... Well, I think by this afternoon, a lot of these uh, states say that they will largely have finished the, the counting. Pennsylvania, Michigan may take a little bit longer, uh, but we're going we're gonna to know. Uh, I think the question is, how close are they? Does it trigger any recounts? And what happens in the courts? You know, what kind of legal... Uh, battles will there be until we have a final, final outcome of this election? Well, we're watching it all closely. Scott Schaefer of KQED, Law Professor Jessica Levinson, and Historia Geraldo Cadava, thank you all so much for talking to us. And to Susan Britton for this segment, I'm Nina Kim. Thank you for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.